This is Dr. David Emanuel in his teaching on the Exodus Psalms. This is session number 5, Psalm 135, The Lord's Supremacy. Okay, we come now to the last psalm we'll be looking at. We began uh, this journey looking at Psalm 136. Uh, We've come full circle now, uh, and we reach the last one, Psalm 135, which I've uh, termed, or I've called, the Lord's Supremacy. The Lord's Supremacy. So uh, we have here, uh, the notes should give you a clue, uh, basically a hymn of praise what Gunkel defines as a hymn of praise. So if you think in terms now of all of the genres, different genres we've seen, we've seen Psalm 136, which is a type of hymn of praise. But then we've seen Psalm 78, which is more kind of like a a bit like a lament or more like a, a wisdom psalm even. We've seen another hymn of praise in Psalm 105 that's very unique and different. And we've seen a lament, a definite lament with Psalm 106. So none of the um, Exodus Psalms, uh, we can't say all the Exodus Psalms, sorry, are one particular genre, but they cross genres, and that's, um, and that's, that, that's fine, that's okay. The Exodus material is not that much, and it is abbreviated in this particular psalm, but the way in which the psalm psalmist uses it uh, is, is, is special, it's individual, and it's uh, a bit different from what we've seen uh, previously. The, the primary use of the Exodus in this particular psalm is a means of demonstrating the omnipotence of God. Um, and you'll see, in particular regard, to the um, impotency of other idols. So there's a direct comparison. We'll see how that works in just a moment. But there's a direct comparison between the power of God and what he can do and the impotency of the other idols. Something else that makes this psalm unique is that it is highly dependent on biblical literature. There is, uh, I don't think there is a single verse within this text that is not connected to another place in biblical literature. So that's something that you're going to see, and we haven't seen that before. Uh, And for that reason uh, alone, there is a strong indication that this psalm is relatively late. As a hymn of praise as well, like Psalm 105, you'll find too that it's a relatively positive theme uh, and anything negative that Israel does has by and large been omitted. Looking at the structure, begin with um, an introduction, uh, which you do with, you normally find a hymn of praise uh, in which the, the song invites people to praise God and to come together as a community. We then have uh, a description of God's omnipotence in creation and in exodus. We've seen before that the two themes were linked. Where we find uh, exodus, we will often find creation. Uh, we found that um, in the, some of the descriptions, the description of God 
rebuking the sea is an image that we find in the creation narrative. In Psalm 105, uh, that's a case where there's no evidence of creation there in that particular psalm. But if we take a step back to Psalm 106, you will find that 100, sorry, 104, 104 is in fact a creation psalm. So it leads uh, right up into the Exodus material. And being as I'm on that topic, it's worthwhile just um, taking a, a brief look at uh, the three psalms um, that we've just previously dealt with, uh, being as I'm here now, Psalm 104, 105, and 106. And if you um, look at them together, you will see that 100 cr- covers creation. Um, and then we go, as we've seen from Abraham, through to the entry of the promised land. And here we go from the crossing of the three C all the way through to the exile. And so when you look at these psalms together, you kind of have a summary of history from creation all the way through to the exile. So that was just um, by the by. Um, God's omnipotence in creation and in Exodus. Then we have a small praise intermission. Two verses which don't really talk about historical um, Uh, any sort of historical event, uh, but they recall the introductory praise. Then you have uh, a description of the impotency of the nation's idols, the uh, silver and gold and the shapes which they mold and how uh, useless these things basically are. And then finally, there's an exhortation to praise in verses 19 through to 21. The structure, or dividing up this psalm in this particular way, you'll see uh, that there is a degree of correspondence between the initial introduction and the exhortation to praise. Both of them have this idea of praise. Both of them use this phrase, um, hallelujah. More importantly is the comparison, therefore, between God's omnipotence, which is matched directly with the impotency of the nation's idols. So that comparison is forced, and in the center we have our praise uh, intermission. And we're going to see, we're going to talk about that in just a moment. So we've got the introduction to um, praise, we've got praise uh, the Lord. Now this is uh, another one of those those pet peeves, it's joined towards uh, this as well. We've got the Hebrew phrase, hallelujah, which um, literally does mean praise the Lord, but you'll see variants in the translations. Some actually um, write the word hallelujah as one word. Others try to split it, as I have done here, to show that what we have here in this, in this phrase, which I think is a very um, important, a powerful phrase, is we've got two words um, in, two words in Hebrew that are joined together. Um, which actually um, may look something like um, um, hallelu, um, halle, is it going to be hallelu, uh, and then yeah. Um, so we've got um, hallel, this word here, which is an imperative. 
which is like a command telling you to praise or to boast about Yah, to boast about the Lord. Uh, so it's, um, it's, it's not just a word that you say, it is in fact a word which should be encouraging people to praise, uh, praise the Lord. And it, it translates uh, differently in different places. Um, praise the Lord, sing praise to him. Um, the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel for his own possession. Uh, and there's a very important word here, segula. They are um, an am segula, a people which is a special possession. Uh, if you go to, I think the book of um, Ecclesiastes uses this words that talks about a treasure, a special treasure that you would have and you would keep aside um, which is which is your personal property. That is what the idea of segula basically is. So it's not any possession, but it is a very special uh, possession. And it links to the ex to this passage in Exodus. And this is just to show you as well that uh, connections to the Exodus motif um, are not necessarily on these um, supernatural acts. But here we've got a connection, a covenant connection, where God says, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession. Then you will be segulashili, um, my, my segula, which is my special uh, possession from among the nations. And so just having the translation as own possession, I perhaps think is a little bit of a disservice to the strength and the weight of that um, particular word. But that's, 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 that's as I feel. Um, once again, you've got Elohim. Um, when you've got this, we began with this. God or gods. That the Lord, Adonai, is great. And that our Lord, Adonenu, is above all gods. Um, above all Elohim. And it's that word again which doesn't refer to the God of Israel, but it refers to other gods or idols of the nations. And this, uh, as we read the introduction to the psalm, we should uh, have our uh, senses up. Previously, when we read an introduction to the introduction to some of the psalms, when we read the introduction to Psalm 105, we read the introduction as well to Psalm 78. In both of those psalms, to introduce the psalm, we had the word niflaot. And I mentioned that, or gedolot, which was this miracle language. And even in the, the um, introduction, what that tells you is that it gives you a hint of what's to come in the psalm. We're going to be discussing uh, the, what the gedolot, what the niflaot of Adonai actually are in the psalm. So here's a hint of it. In this case here, we've got um, God is a great God and that our Lord is above all gods. Here as well, we've got the similar indication and a similar key. And the psalmist is saying, hey, this is what I'm going to be talking about. This is the main topic of what I'm saying. Our God is greater than all other gods. If you don't know how, then keep reading and you're going to find out. And I'm going to explain that to you. So you've got the basic theme being established in the introduction to the psalm. Not just here, it happens quite often. There'll be clues, there'll be hints, there'll be allusions to what is coming on. Um, so now um, we come to this um, section of God's omnipotence. The greatness of God. 
and we first see examples of uh, omnipotence in creation. Now, when we think about creation, uh, oftentimes in our minds, in, in the, the modern person's mind, creation is an event that happens in uh, you know six days, six periods of time. It's not my job to enter into the theology of the whole situation, but for biblical sakes, it says it happens in six days. But people see creation as happening in that period. God uh, came down, he created the world, made mankind, and then he takes a step back and he moves back. And I mentioned this before, um, some would then have it that he then finds Mother Nature to go and run things for him whilst he rests in this eternal rest. This idea of creation, it's not the biblical notion of creation. The biblical notion of creation is that God creates the world and he continues making things turn. He continues um, sending uh, rain. He continues sending the sun. He continues growing crops, trees, plants. He continues to be active and involved in the world. He hasn't taken a step back at all. So when we look at um, causing God causing the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth, this is an act of creation. He keeps the world uh, moving. He continually remains involved in the um, running and the management of this world and of this planet. So we've got the omnipotence in creation followed by um, the omnipotence in Exodus with kind of like a, a reversed order, a bit of a reversed order here. The first thing it mentions is the smiting of the firstborn in Egypt, um, both man and beast. And then it says he sent signs and wonders into your midst. Well, he did the signs and wonders, if you like, first. He did the um, other plagues and then he did the firstborn, but the firstborn is mentioned first. We also have this, men this mention of upon Pharaoh and his servants, which recalls what we did first in Psalm 136. Now, the relationship between these two Psalms is quite special, and I'll be discussing that a little bit later on. So it says again, a summary statement. He smote many nations and slew mighty kings. For example, who? And we've got this focus again on the Transjordan region, where he speaks of Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan. So by now, there should be a sense of deja vu, because we kind of heard this in Psalm 136. Um, and as a result of all of that, because he owns creation and runs creation, he is able and he is qualified to distribute land as a heritage to his people Israel and that's exactly what he does. Um, once again you see more clearly here though the terrorist pattern terrorist pattern of um, he gave their land as a heritage so you've got a heritage repeated here a heritage to Israel his people uh, and again those words will ring a bell with the previous psalm no doubt. In many ways, as we look at this section of the psalm, we need to understand it as a divine resume. Uh, what the psalmist is doing is he is portraying a picture of the God of Israel. Who is this God? 
What does he do? Well, here's his resume. He runs the world. He smites kings for the sake of his people. And he distributes land for the sake of his people. That's what our God does. Um, you know, This is who he is in the same way we would have a resume that describes what we have done in our lives and who we are. So we have the divine resume laid out at this um, particular uh, point. And then we go on to uh, a praise intermission that speaks of your name, O Lord, is everlasting. Your remembrance, O Lord, through all generations. For the Lord will judge his people and will have compassion on his servants. This is very much, I mentioned before, a literary hinge. It comes in the middle of the psalm. Uh, We've had an introduction. We've had God's resume. Um, We're hinging now before we go and look at the resume of the gods, the idols of the nations. In this case, we've got the word judge, for the Lord will judge his people. Yishpot et amo, and the expression judge has various connotations. It's the idea of apportioning that which is good for the good people and that which is punishments for the bad people. And so when um, the Lord will judge his people, he he can only judge, it's only a a positive um, action if the people are righteous. And you would see, you would assume that that the psalmist is assuming his people are righteous. Because if the Lord will judge his people, then it's not so much judging them as it is vindicating them. You are righteous, and therefore I'm going to give you all of these positive things. Therefore, it's something to be welcomed. Um, But if you want to judge your enemies, you know they're doing wrong, and therefore punishment is going to be given to them. The idea of name, um, your name, it, it goes back, harkens back to verse 1. Um, it says that your name, O Lord, is everlasting. And the idea of the Hebrew name uh, in this context is the idea of one's reputation. It's his reputation, the things that you do, um, rather than just having thinking in terms of the divine name. It's everything that's attributed to it, the power that's behind it, the authority, the omnipotence that's behind it as well. So now we turn to the resume of the idols, the idols of the nations. Um, And here, through the structure, as I'd shown you before, the comparison is directly with the Lord and what the Lord um, can do. Um, The idols of the nations basically have features but no function. They have features but no function. And this is in direct comparison because if you know the God of Israel, he has no features but is all function. He does stuff but nobody knows what he looks like. Nobody um, has an image of him which is the total opposite of what's going on with these other idols. Made with silver and gold. Um, An interesting um, inclusion here. We saw one with Egypt uh, in Psalm 105, but here we have one with mouths. Mouths they have, but they do not speak. They have eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Nor is there any breath at all in their mouths. And so what you have here is between the two words mouth is you have the description of 
the gods of the nations um, regarding their facial features. And so that's just a way of encapsulating a, a group, a particular series of um, characteristics through what's called an inclusion. From this, um, you would assume that the purpose of this psalm really is to discourage idolatry. It's to say, um, you know, if you recite this psalm, you are saying that our God is great. But so why worship idols? They don't do anything. So it is quite um, negative and it is quite disparaging concerning the um, gods of the other nations. So it's there to um, dissuade people from turning to other idols. The last section we have here um, is a group exhortation in which various groups within the uh, temple, it's assumed that there would have been different groups, different choirs um, there, and it would have been, uh, assuming that it was um, recited in the temple, they would have been encouraged to bless God. So you have a house of Aaron, the house of Levi, those who revere the Lord, uh, God-fearers basically, um, those who fear the Lord is probably a better description, um, and then you've got this general blessing. So we've got some kind of a temple setting with different groups in the temple. We've got praise the Lord, which is mentioned here, and this is another inclusion where the psalm begins basically and ends with the words hallelujah. So that caps encapsulates Everything that's in the psalm. This is a song of praise, uh, and in the beginning and the end are cast the same way. What is very peculiar about this psalm, as mentioned before, is that it is, uh, as mentioned before, it is highly dependent upon other biblical texts. Not in just the sense of it alludes to other material. Um, it's much more severe uh, than that. And in certain senses, um, I, I, if you allow me to be so crass as to, 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 to name it like this, this is kind of a Frankenstein psalm in that it's a psalm that has been put together almost from the spare parts of many other psalms. And in spite of this, it has, the psalmist has still been able to create it and shape it very carefully into his own work. So let's take a look at some of the more, um, uh, the, the, the more uh, brash examples of literary borrowing within this uh, psalm. If we look here, these are two texts. This is, this is Psalm 135.7 and this is Jeremiah 13.10. Sorry, He causes the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth who makes the lightnings for the rain, who brings forth the wind from his treasuries. He causes the clouds to ascend from the end of the earth, makes lightning for the rain, and brings out the wind from his um, storehouses. These two passages. Now, once again, I'm going back to my pet peeve. The Hebrew wording here, apart from a, a change in tense, is exactly the same. Yet, um, the NASB has seemed to translate vapors here, and clouds here, even though it's exactly the same. I know, I know it's not important, um, but it still kind of bothers me that um, if the 
if the psalmist has been so careful as to copy words from one place into the other, why can't the translators do the same thing? There shouldn't really be a change here, but that's for another day. Um, so we see this kid. This is ex- this is exact copying, apart from one where there's a, a participle which is changed for a vayiktol, a, 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 a a vav plus um, imperfect form. Apart from that, this is exactly the same wording that's used in this particular place. Let's look at this example here. Verse 14, Deuteronomy 32, 36. For the Lord will judge his people and will have compassion on his servants. Once again, um, we have judge, mishpat. It's the same word, but we have vindicate here, but judge here in the two places for whatever reasons, maybe Maybe, you know, the people who translated Deuteronomy were in Toronto and the people who did the psalm were in um, Texas and they just never spoke. But it, it's a, there's a deliberate um, copying and borrowing that the psalmist has done, which is, which is messed up a little bit in the, um, uh, uh, the, the, the translational issue. But the, the wording here is exactly the same. So it's just taken from one place and put into another. We have another example here. From Psalm 136, so we've come full circle now, uh, we find this description of um, God who smote many nations and slew mighty kings. We've got smote great kings. Now, if you kind of ignore the, um, for his loving kindness is forevermore, you will see some similarities. Sichon, king of the Amorites. Sichon, king of the Amorites. Again, ignore this. And Og, king of Bashan. Og, king of Bashan, and he gave their land as a heritage. He gave their land as a heritage, a heritage to Israel, a heritage to Israel. So we see the exact wording, which has been taken from another psalm. In this case, it happens to be the psalm which actually um, follows it. And if this uh, were not enough, we can then go further to looking at Psalm uh, verse 15 and Psalm 115, 4. And in this case, we've got the idols of the nations are but silver and gold. Their, their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Again, let's not talk about that. They have eyes, but they do not see. Um, they have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they do not hear. They have ears, but they cannot hear. Um, those who make them will be like them. Those who make them will become like them. Um, yes, everyone who trusts in them, everyone who trusts in them. Psalm 154. This is the same wording that has been borrowed from another psalm. And so we see uh, this, uh, this is why you know, I would describe it such as a um, as a, a Frankenstein psalm, because the psalmist is clearly borrowing wording from all of these individual places, and I, this is not the end of the matter, because there's much more to it, we just don't have time to go into every detail, these are the, the clearest examples, but it's clear that he is borrowing material, and even more uh, strangely, a lot of the, some of the Exodus material, He's not going back to Exodus to use it. He's using another psalm. So he's just like we saw in the first example where um, the psalmist borrowed from Exodus 15 from a poetic example and the prose example. Here uh, he's going to another poetic tradition in order to help create his work. But in spite of that, he does nevertheless 
create something new, something very new from these old bits and pieces. So even though we can see these clear literary illusions, we should not be um, lulled into a sense of thinking that somehow it's a, a cheap work that doesn't um, that has no creativity in it, because there is still a great deal of creativity in the way in which he has ordered his parts. So to summarize, we're going to summarize this psalm, and then afterwards I'm going to try to wrap up um, everything else that we've um, learned about the Exodus psalms in closing. The first thing is um, we have the Exodus as a, uh, a hymn of praise. It's a hymn of praise again, like Psalm 105, but it is very different from Psalm 105. The historical period covered is um, really quite different. There's much more addition of other material, such as the creation material we have here, um, as well as this direct comparison with other idols. So yes, they are similar, but we mustn't forget they are very, very different and very uh, unique, if I can even say, um, also. Also in this psalm, we have um, no intermediaries. We don't have a mention of Moses. We're back to where we started off. No clear mention of um, Aaron, of any of these figures, any of these um, uh, Israelite leaders at all. These things are all skipped over. Also, like Psalm 136, we can see um, this theme of God versus kings. And it's, that's borrowed from the following psalm. Uh, another reason why they may have been juxtaposed. But it's borrowed from the following psalm, and we have a mention of the kings of, of um, uh, Pharaoh, plus the kings of the Amorites, of Og and Sihon, that God does battle with these people and fights for his people uh, in that sense. And all of this is there to show that God, not, it's not to demonstrate his eternal mercy and his eternal love, which is what it was used before, but here it's to demonstrate his potency versus the potency of the idols of the nations. Uh, and then the, the last thing which we see in this psalm as well is that it blends creation with exodus. It links the two things directly together. And I'd mentioned before, those two themes are inexplicably uh, linked uh, throughout the Exodus Psalms and throughout the Bible. Um, so that ends Psalm 135. And so um, what I want to do now is just quickly um, go through some final summary points of all the Psalms of the Exodus. And I want to emphasize uh, some of the important things that we, we need to really grasp when looking at its, its appearance within the Exodus um, uh, Psalms within the so within the Psalter. So some summary points. First of all, it's important to remember, as I began, that the Exodus is the most influential biblical tradition in the Bible. The most influential tradition. Uh, it permeates absolutely. Um, everything. It goes from Genesis, I've mentioned before. We saw an example of it in um, uh, the book of Genesis with the um, uh, torch between the pieces. Uh, I could be more uh, explicit and we could talk about 
um, Abraham going into Egypt. If you think about that story when he first goes in, in, in uh, Genesis 12, when Abraham first goes into Egypt, he goes down into Egypt to escape uh, a famine. Whilst he's in Egypt, he is then uh, oppressed by um, a pharaoh. Um, through that oppression, he is then delivered by God. God intervenes. Um, pharaoh's house is plagued and he is then set free. And when he leaves Egypt, he leaves Egypt with more silver and gold. So that's what Abraham does. And this is a direct reflection of Israel who, who leaves Canaan and goes into Egypt because of a famine. Whilst in Egypt, they are oppressed by Pharaoh. God intervenes, plagues um, Pharaoh. And as a result, they leave Egypt with silver and gold, just like Abraham. So there's a clear mirror right there between what goes on in, in Genesis and also in the Exodus. So in that sense, it, uh, Abraham's actions foreshadow the Exodus um, uh, later on. And that goes all the way through to the book of Revelation as well, where we find uh, the plagues being described that are sent upon the earth, uh, the locusts, the frogs, all of these things are coming from the Exodus motif. It is across the whole of the Bible, and so to find it in the Psalter should not at all come as any surprise. The next thing we need to be aware of is that there is clearly a conversion from prose to poetry. There is, uh, when we look at biblical Hebrew poetry, it is slightly um, more uh, flamboyant. It's slightly more exaggerated. So there has to be a necessary change from recalling or transferring a prose story into a poetic story. And we see that change going on. We've seen it in some of the language of some of the Psalms we looked at in Psalm 78, where um, things were exaggerated slightly. Other traditions were recalled. So we had the, the um, doors of heaven being opened. We have angels' food being eaten by people. So this is kind of like a, a transformation of the prose into a poetic uh, version of the same rendition. It's very important to realize as well that the, the Exodus occurs in different genres. Uh, it's, 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 it's not limited to one thing. Um, and this is something as well. Uh, many Christians limit the idea of the Exodus to the simple um, practice of salvation. It describes how we were slaves to sin and how we've been freed from our sin into something else. That's just one use of the Exodus, but it appears in many different ways and it's used in many different ways in the Psalter and indeed for the rest of the Bible. So the fact that it appears in different genres is um, a reflection of its, the way in which it's used um, differently. Perhaps um, most important is the elevation of God's role in the Exodus. Uh, we, there is a, a repetitive theme throughout um, the Psalms we've looked at, whereby the deeds of men are pushed down and minimalized, and the acts of God are elevated. And he becomes um, uh, so much more in direct control. He sends the plagues. He sets people free. 
He splits the sea. It's not about Moses and his staff anymore. It's not about Moses and Aaron going to Pharaoh saying, let my people go otherwise. It's about God taking action and directly coming into confrontation with creation in the water um, uh, and in the desert and with people as well. And then there is perhaps the most important point um, touched upon before, and that it's tailored for specific purposes. And by this, I want to really um, just finish up all of this by emphasizing that when we are looking at the the psalmists who deal with the Exodus motif, we are dealing with people who tailor it for specific purposes. And what this basically means is that uh, when we talk about psalmists, we're not talking so much about songwriters, but we are talking about biblical exegetes. We are talking about people who are performing biblical exegesis. They're reading a narrative and they are taking that narrative and they are making it work for specific purposes to teach a particular point. And this work of the psalmist, I think, has been generally underplayed. We simply think of them as songwriters. We think of them as people sitting on a hill with a harp in their hands, writing beautiful music and listening to the birds and taking it all in. But really, we should be thinking of the psalmist as people who are sitting in a library with books before them, who are opening up Um, stories of Abraham, stories of the Exodus, and they are taking these things together and they are reshaping them into a message that is unique to their audience. So that's where I um, end. I hope you've enjoyed it, um, this uh, brief presentation. Um, And if there's anything else, there's nothing else that you take, sorry, from all of this, it is very important to remember that the psalmist is a biblical exegete. This is Dr. David Emanuel in his teaching on the Exodus Psalms. This is session number 5, Psalm 135, The Lord's Supremacy. Mm-hmm.